0: This is Hearts of Oak podcast. Free speech,
1: religious disagreement, children's rights, and open and free discussion on any topic are bedrock to a democratic free society, and we seek to promote
0: and champion these basic rights. Join us. Let's keep the conversation going.
1: Dr. Stephen Mayer, it's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you so much for your time today.
0: Uh, Thanks for uh, inviting me, Peter.
1: No, it's great to have you. And uh, people can find you on Twitter at Stephen C. Mayer. It's on the screen there. And also discovery.org, the Discovery Institute. And um, you obviously received your PhD in philosophy of sciences from England, from University of Cambridge, your former uh, geophysicist, college professor, and you now are the director of Discovery. Institute, uh, author of many books. Uh, the latest is Return of the God Hypothesis, three scientific discoveries that reveal the mind behind the universe. And the links for those books will be in the description. But um, Dr... Mayor, if I can maybe, I I think I remember as a child, uh, church loyalty, being at church and getting a stamp for attending. I remember asking for a book on creationism then, and we'll maybe touch on different creationism, intelligent design. I mean, it was ten or eleven, and I remember being fascinated by this whole topic of how God can be seen in the world around us. Um, And maybe I can ask you about your journey Uh, what has been your journey to being one of the i guess main proponents on intelligent design
0: well i've always been interested in questions at the intersection between science and uh, philosophy or science and uh, larger worldview questions or science and religion but the big uh the the questions that are addressed about um uh you know how, how do we get here and, uh, what, what is, is there a, a, a particular significance to human life? What is the meaning of life? Um, in the early part of my scientific career, I was working as a geophysicist, as you mentioned in the introduction and in the city where I was working, a conference came to town that was investigating the, that intersection of, of science and philosophy, science and belief in, uh, and it was addressing three big questions just, uh, and they were, Uh, the origin of the universe the origin of life and the origin and nature of human consciousness and the conference was uh unique in it that in that it had invited uh, leading scientists and philosophers representing both theism broadly speaking belief in god and uh scientists and philosophers who rejected theism and who affirmed the more uh more common view among leading scientists at that time, which was materialism or sometimes called naturalism uh we have the 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 new atheist movement uh with their their scientific atheists and people of more of that persuasion so it was uh let's look at the the origin of the universe from the standpoint what is the what do the data say what do you theists say about it what do you non theist materialists say about it I, and um i i it was a fascinating conference and I was particularly taken by the panels on the origin of the universe and the origin of life because, uh, surprisingly to me, it seemed that the theists had the intellectual initiative, that the, the evidence in those uh, about the origin of the universe um, and then the, about the, the, uh, the, the complexity of the cell and therefore the challenges it posed to uh, standard chemical evolutionary theories of the origin of life, that in both these two areas, both these two subjects, Uh, It seemed that there were powerful, theistic, friendly arguments being uh, developed, in one case, about the uh, what you might call a a a, a reviving of the ancient cosmological argument because of the evidence that scientists had discovered about the universe having a beginning, and in the other case... uh, what we now call the theory of intelligent design, that there was evidence of design in the cell, in particular in the digital code that is stored in the DNA molecule, the information and information processing system of the cell. Uh, it, it was at that time and still to this day is something that uh, undirected theories of chemical evolution have not been able to explain. And instead what we know from our experience is that, uh, information is a mind product which is a point that some of these scientists made at this panel that when we see digital code or alphabetic text or uh, computer code and many people have likened the the information in DNA to a computer code we always find a mind behind that so this was the first time I was exposed to that way of thinking I got I got fascinated with that a year later I was uh, I I, you know, after, after the conference, I ended up meeting one of the scientists on the Origin of Life panel, a man named Charles Thaxon, who would just written a book with two other co-authors called The Mystery of Life's Origin. He was detailing in that book, he and his colleagues were detailing sort of chapter and verse the problems with trying to explain the origin of the first cell from uh, simpler chemicals in some alleged or presupposed supposed prebiotic soup. And he, the, the three authors showed that this was implausible in the extreme given what we know scientifically about uh, how chemistry works versus how cells work. And, um, and over the ensuing year, he, he kind of mentored me and uh, I got fascinated with this subject and ended up getting a, a, a fellowship from the, a Rotary Fellowship to study at Cambridge for a year. And then ended up extending on, I did my uh, master's thesis and then my PhD thesis, b- both on origin of life biology within the history and philosophy of science department at Cambridge. And uh, while I was there, I started to meet other scientists and, and, uh, and scholars who were having doubts about standard uh, Darwinian and uh, chemical evolutionary theories of life's origin And uh, by the early 90s, a number of us had had met each other and connected and had some private conferences. And out of that was born um, a formal program investigating the evidence for intelligent design in biology, in physics, in cosmology. And uh, in 96, we started a program at Discovery Institute. Um, You were very kind to me to call me the director of the whole institute. I'm I direct the, a program within the Institute yeah. called the Center of Science and Culture, which is the institutional home of uh, a network of scientists who are investigating whether or not there is empirical scientific evidence for a designing mind behind life in the cosmos. And um, and it, it, the program just continues to grow. The, the network especially continues to grow. We've got fantastic scientists from all around the world now who are sympathetic to that position. And... I would mention, too, that it's a position that's kind of reviving an ancient view, uh, going back to uh, certainly the time of the scientific revolution. Uh, in, in particular, we've discovered back to the scientific revolution in Cambridge, where I had been fortunate enough to study. Um, there's a In the college that I was part of, St. Catharines, there was, back in the 17th century, one of the founders of modern botany, uh, who w- was also one of the first authors of what's called British Natural Theology. His name was John Ray. Ray was the tutor of Isaac Barrow, a mathematician who in turn tutored Newton. And so this whole tradition of seeing the fingerprints of a creator in the natural world is something that was launched in, uh, in, in Britain, particularly in Cambridge. There were other figures like Robert Boyle who were in other places, but the Cambridge tradition of, of natural theology was very strong from that t- from that time period in the in the seventeenth uh, century, late seventeenth century, right up to figures like um, uh, James Clerk Maxwell, the great physicist in the late nineteenth century, who was critical, skeptical of Darwinism, and and uh, articulated uh, the the idea of design. And I think that's now being revived in contemporary uh, within contemporary science. There's a growing minority of scientists who see evidence of design in nature
1: No, the understand intelligent designer that that's a a new thinking but that through the millennia that's been the norm Uh, individuals have viewed the world through the lens that there is a god uh, and that has uh, helped them understand and see the world but there must have been a point i guess when intellectuals decided that scientific knowledge conflicts with that traditional belief that traditional theistic belief
0: yeah that's that's a great way of framing the the discussion peter there's a a historian of science in britain named uh steve fuller who's at um, uh warwick and um he he's argued that the idea of intelligent design has been the um the the framework out of which science has been done since the period of the scientific revolution, at least, and that the, the post-Darwinian deviation from that, denying that there's actual design and only instead, as the Darwinian biologists say, the appearance or illusion of design. You may remember from Richard Dawkins' famous book, The Blind Watchmaker, page one, he says, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. And of course, for Dawkins and his uh, followers. And, and and for Darwinians from the late 19th century forward, the appearance of design is an illusion. And it was thought, thought to be an illusion because Darwin had formulated an undirected, uh, uh, or had identified an undirected, unguided process, which he called natural selection, that could mimic the powers of a designing intelligence, uh, or so he argued, without itself being designed or guided in any way. And that's kind of where we've engaged the argument, is that appearance of design that nearly all biologists recognize merely an appearance, or is it the product of an actual uh, guiding intelligence? And that's why we, we call our theory intelligent design. We're not challenging the idea that there has been change over time, one of the other meanings of evolution. We're not challenging even the idea of universal common descent, though some of us, myself included, are quite skeptical of that. The main thing we're challenging with the theory of intelligent design is that is that the appearance of design is essentially an illusion because an unguided, undirected mechanism has the capability of generating that appearance without itself being guided or directed in any way. Um, and that's, 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 that's to us the key issue. Does, is the design real or merely a, a, a apparent? You may remember that Francis Crick also once said that biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see... Was not designed, but is instead, but instead evolved. So there's this the 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 recurrence of that strong I- intuition among people who have studied biological systems, and I would say that going back all the way to Aristotle. You know, this has been the Western tradition in biology has been suffused with uh, this uh, recognition uh, that that organisms look designed. They look like they're designed for a purpose. They exhibit purpose of behavior, and now in the in the age. Following Watson and Crick, following the molecular biological revolution of the late 50s and 1960s and 70s, we have extraordinary, extraordinarily strong appearances of design. We've got digital code. We have a replication system. We have a translation system as part of this whole information processing system. Scientists can't help but use teleological wording to describe what's going on. We see the purpose of nature of all of the, the, the biological systems and subsystems. And so uh, what we've argued is that at least at the point of the origin of life, there is no unguided, undirected, or there is no theory that invokes, that, that uh, has identified an unguided, undirected mechanism that can explain away that appearance of design. Um, many people don't realize that, that Darwin did not attempt to explain the origin of the first life. He presupposed the existence of one or or a few very simple forms. And uh, and so he started effectively with assuming a simple cell and then said, well, what would have come from that? We now know, however, that the simple cell was not simple at all and displays this uh, many very striking appearances of design that... Um, have not been explained by undirected chemical evolutionary processes. D- uh, Dawkins himself has said that the machine code of the of the genes is uh, strikingly computer-like, and so you have this striking uh, appearance of design at the very foundation of life that has not in any way been explained by um, by undirected processes.
1: Well, I want to pick up on a, a number of that, the new discoveries, um, how things have changed, the the, the complexity. Uh, but I can go back, you're challenging, I guess, hundreds of years of, of new thinking, uh, that the complexity of the universe simply points to luck and chance. And I guess there's a t- t- statistical side of that, whether that's even possible. Uh, we we look around and we see things just working perfectly. Um, And I wonder whether it's even possible for a a chance element to make all those things come together and make the world as it is. Well, in my book
0: Signature in the Cell, which was the first of the three books that I've written on these these big topics, um, I look at the uh, argument for the chance origin of life and even more fundamentally, the chance origin of, of, say, DNA and the protein products that the DNA codes for and one of the first things to take note of in, in in addressing the chance hypothesis is that no serious origin of life researcher no no origin of life biochemist or biologist today reposes much hope in the chance hypothesis it's it's really been set aside and the reason for that uh, I, I I explain the reason for that in, in Signature in the Cell and then do some calculations to kind of back up the thinking that most original life biologists have adopted. And that is that the, the cell is simply far too complicated to have arisen by chance. And, you can, and the, the large biomacromolecules, DNA and proteins, are molecules that depend on a property known as sequence specificity or sometimes called specified complexity, that is to say they contain informational instructions in essentially a digital or typographic form. So you have in the DNA, you have the four character chemical subunits that biologists actually rec- uh, uh, sorry represent with the letters A, T, G, and C. And if you want to build a protein, you have to arrange the A, C's, G's, and T's, or the evolutionary process, or somehow the A, C's, G's, and T's must have uh, uh, been sequenced in the proper way so that when that genetic message is sent to the ribosome, which is the translation uh, apparatus in the cell, then what comes out of that is a properly sequenced protein molecules. Proteins also are made of, of subunits called amino acids. There are 20 or so, maybe as many as 22 now, protein-forming amino acids and to get the protein chain that's, that is built from the DNA instructions to fold into a proper functional conformation or three-dimensional shape, those amino acids have to be arranged in very specific ways. If they're not arranged properly, the, 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 the long peptide chain, as it's called, will not fold into a stable protein. And so in both cases, you have this property of sequence specificity, that the function of the whole, the whole gene in the case of DNA or the whole protein in the case of uh, of the amino acids, the, f- the function of the whole depends upon the precise sequencing of the constitutive parts. And, um, and uh, that's the difficulty getting those things to, to, to line up properly. turns out there's all, there's all kinds of difficulties in trying to form those, those subunits, those, those chemical parts out of any kind of prebiotic chemical environment that we've been able to think of. But the most fundamental problem is the sequencing. And so you can actually run, because there's, if you think of the protein chain, you have one in 20, roughly chances of getting the right amino acid at each site sometimes it's more or less because in some cases you can have any uh one of uh, uh, there there is some variability a lot allowed at each site but you can run numbers on all this and get very precise numbers on the probability of of, of generating even a single functional protein uh in the known history of of the universe and it it turns out that the the, the what are called the combinatorials or the, the probabilities associated with those combinatorials are the probabilities are so small that, that they are small even in relation to the number of the, the, the total number of possible events that might've occurred from the big bang till now. In other words, I, I here's an example I often use to use uh, to illustrate. If you have a thief trying to crack a bike lock, um, if the thief has enough time even though the combination is hidden among all the possibilities. And then the probability of getting the combination in one trial is very small. If the three thief has enough time and can try and try and try again, um, he may crack it by, by, by sheer chance. But if the lock is, uh, we have a, a you know, standard four dial bike lock, but if you encounter, the thief encounters a 10 dial bike lock, and I've had one rendered by my, uh, by, my graphic designer to get the point across, then in a human lifetime, there's not enough chance, there's not enough opportunities to sample that number of possible combinations. If you've got 10 dials, you've got 10 to the 10 possibilities, or 10, I think it's 10 billion. And uh, if the if the thief spins the dial once every 10 seconds for an, for 100 years and does nothing else in his entire life, he'll only sample 3% of those total combinations, which means it's much more likely That the the thief will fail, then it is that he will succeed by chance alone. And that's the kind of that's the so so the point is that there are there are degrees of complexity or improbability that dwarf what we call probabilistic resources, the opportunities. And that's the situation we have when we're talking about the origin of the first biomacromolecules by by reference to chance alone. Only it's not just that you would with those um events uh, you know all the events that have occurred in the early uh, from the earlier or from the beginning of the universe till now could only sample about one i think i've calculated about one 10 trillion trillionth of the total possibilities that uh, that uh, uh, uh that correspond to a, a modest length protein so it's it's like the it's like the bike thief trying to sample that 10 dial lock only much much worse you know uh, it turns out that 14 billion years isn't enough time to have a reasonable chance to find informational biomolecules by chance alone.
1: I mean, it is the whole scientific argument that removes God, uh, is it is it just an attempt by science to, to play God? Because it uh, whenever we are told that scientific principles break down and no longer exist at the at the very beginning, for instance, um, and it, it doesn't make sense, we're told that that's just how it happened, and you have to accept that. And it seems to be people jumping over themselves with the desperation to try and remove the idea that there is an intelligent designer. Well. I, I tend to think the uh, questions of motivation
0: in these debates are kind of a wash. I think as theists, we have to, re- I'm a theist, okay, I believe in God. Um, in my first two books, I argued for designing intelligence of some kind as being, of some unspecified kind as being the best explanation for the information, for example, in the cell or the information needed to build fundamentally new uh, body plans in the in the, in the history of life on Earth. So. Um, but in my in my last book, I extend that argument. I bring in evidence from cosmology and physics and suggest that the, the 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 best explanation for that the ensemble of evidence that we have about biological and physical and cosmological origins is actually a designing intelligence that has attributes that, for example, Jews and Christians have always ascribed to God, transcendence as and as well as intelligence. Uh, for example, no being within the cosmos, no space alien. And some scientists have proposed, even Crick, Watson, or Francis Crick uh, in 1981 in a little book called Life Itself floated the idea that, yes, we do see evidence of design in life. The origin of life is a very hard problem. We can't see how it could possibly have happened on Earth. So maybe there was an intelligent life form from space who seeded life here. It, he was subsequently ridiculed a bit and, uh, and said, uh, I, I think he was embarrassed that he he floated this and said he would not. He, he forswore any further speculation on the origin of life problem. It was too difficult, he said. But in any case, back to your question. I think the 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 whole question. Oh oh, I, 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 I was finishing a thought, and that is that that the evidence of design that we have from the very beginning of the universe and what's called the fine-tuning of the laws and constants of physics and the initial conditions of the universe, the basic parameters of physics which which were set at the beginning are exquisitely finely tuned against all odds. and, And no space alien, no intelligence within the cosmos could be responsible for the evidence of design that we have from the very beginning of the universe because any any alleged space alien would itself have had to evolve by some sort of naturalistic processes further down the timeline once you have stable galaxies and planets and that sort of thing. And so no being within the cosmos could be responsible for the conditions that made its f- future evolution possible, nor could a space alien be, be responsible for the origin of the universe itself. So when, when you bring in the cosmological and the physical evidence, I think the only type of designing intelligence that can explain the whole range of evidence we have is one that is transcendent, that is beyond the cosmos, but also active in the creation, because we see evidence of, of information arising later, and information, as I've mentioned, is a mind product based on our our, our uniform and repeated experience. Um, but um, as to the as to the motivation issue, I I, I kind of think it's a wash. I, I think theists have to acknowledge that. That all people, including those of us who are theists, have a have a, a motivation, maybe a hope that there is a purposeful intelligence behind the cosmos. I think there's a kind of growing angst in young people. Harvard study recently showing that over fifty percent of young people have doubts about the there being any purpose to their existence, and this is contributing to the mental health crisis. Um, and uh, so, I think I think all of us would like it to be possible, for there to be life after death, for there to be a, 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 an enduring purpose to our lives that does not extinguish when we die or when eventually there's a heat death of the universe. Um, uh, I, think, I think theism, belief in God gives people a, a sense of purpose in relation, the possibility of a relationship to our creator. Um, that's a positive thing. I think there's also a, a, a common human uh, motivation to not want to be accountable to that creator and to have moral complete moral freedom to decide what we want to do at any given time. And so oftentimes theists or God-believers, religious people will say, well, you just you know, like these materialistic theories of origins because um, you you don't want to be accountable to a, a higher power. Um, that might be true. but. It's equally true that the and the theists will or the the atheists will often say, well, but you 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 guys uh, just need a cosmic crutch. You you need comfort from the idea of, of a divine being, a, a loving creator, father, whatever. Uh, you know the divine father figure, and, and Freud famously uh, critiqued or criticized uh, religious belief in those terms. So I I when I I think that the, those two. Kind of motivation arguments about motivation are something of a wash and that what i've tried to do in return of the god hypothesis is set all of that aside look at the evidence that we have and then evaluate it using some standard methods of scientific reasoning and sign and, and standard uh, methods of evaluating hypotheses uh, such as um, a, a bayesian analysis for example that come out of of, of logic and philosophy and and set the motivation questions aside and my conclusion is that that the the evidence for an intelligent designer of some unspecified kind is extremely strong from biology and that when you bring in the cosmological and physical evidence the evidence of fine tuning and the evidence we have that the material cosmos itself had a beginning i think materialism fails as an explanation and you need you need to invoke a an intelligence with that is both transcendent and active in the creation to explain the whole range of evidence.
1: Well, I pick you up on that change because initially there is a change from someone who believes the evolutionary model, big bang, there is no external force. Uh, that step from there to there is an external force, there is uh, intelligent design uh, feeding into the universe we have. And then it's another step to take that to there is an intelligent designer, now there is a personal God. Um, And that step certainly, I assume, is frowned upon in the scientific community. Um, Tell us about you making that step, because it would have been much safer to stay, I guess, in the ID side and not to make the uh, step into who that individual is. Tell us about kind of what prompted you to actually make the step into answering that who question
0: right well the um I, i've been thinking about this question for the 30, 35 36 i don't know since, since the mid 80s when i was a, a very young scientist and and it was at the conference that inspired it because uh, at the conference there were people already thinking about the god question especially the cosmologists uh, at that at that conference Alan Sandage announced his conversion to, uh, to from from scientific agnosticism he was a scientific materialist to theism and indeed I think he became Christian and uh, he talked about how the evidence for the singularity at the beginning beginning of the universe the evidence that the material cosmos itself had a beginning was one of the things that moved him off of that materialistic uh, perspective, that it was clear to him that as he described it, that the evidence we had for a beginning was evidence for what he called a super, with a, with a space in between natural events. Some Nothing within the cosmos could explain the origin of the cosmos itself. If matter, space, time, and energy have a beginning, and as best we can tell, they do, and there are multiple lines of evidence and theoretical considerations that lead to that conclusion, and I developed that in Return of the God Hypothesis. It's, it is the evidence from observational astronomy and also developments in theoretical physics converge on that conclusion. Uh, and if that's the case, if, if matter and energy themselves have a beginning and indeed if space and time themselves have, have a beginning, then, then we can't invoke any materialistic explanation to, to explain that. Because before there was matter, before the beginning of matter, there was no matter to do the causing. And, and that's the problem. There must, there must be something if for, for there to be a causal explanation for the universe, it it requires a transcendent something. Um, and when you when you also consider that we have evidence for design from the very beginning in the fine-tuning of the initial physical parameters of the universe, the initial conditions of the universe, the initial uh establishment and fine-tuning of the of the physical laws um, then you have evidence for that transcendent something be it being a transcendent intelligent something and if something is intelligent uh capable of making choose choices between one outcome or another uh that's really what we mean by by personhood i mean this is very close to a per- uh, the idea of a personal god now that entity may not want to have anything to do with us but we're talking about a conscious agent when we talk about evidence for intelligent design. And then we have further evidence, I think, in biology uh, with the, the, the the, the presence of the information and information processing system inside cells. Um, And and so when when you bring all that together, I think you can start to address the who question. So after I wrote signature in the cell and Darwin's doubt, a lot of my readers were asking, okay, that's great. We have evidence of a designing intelligence, but w- w- who, who would that intelligence have been? Is it a space alien, something imminent within the cosmos like Crick and, uh, and and others have proposed, or is it a transcendent intelligence? And what can science tell us about that question? So I, I thought it's, an, it's a natural ex- a question that flows from my first two books, I would, I would stipulate that the theory of intelligent design formally as a theory is a theory of design detection. And it allows us to detect the, the action of an agent as opposed to undirected material processes. We have this example that we often use. If you look at the faces on the mountains at Mount Rushmore, you right away know that a designing intelligence of some kind was responsible for sculpting those faces. And there's, there are, those those faces exhibit two, two properties, which when found together invariably and reliably indicate a designing intelligence. Uh, and we've described those pro- properties as high probability. And it's called a specification, a pattern match. Um, and we have uh, evidence of small probability specifications in life. Um, and, 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 if, if something is an informational sequence, it's it's another way of getting at, the, the it's another way of revealing design. So we can get into all of that. But the point is we've got evidence of design in life, but the cosmology and fine tuning allow us to adjudicate between two different design hypotheses, the imminent intelligence and the transcendent one. And and I thought, well, let's take this on. It's a natural, it, it, it goes beyond the, the theory of intelligent design, formally speaking. And it addresses one of the possible implications of the evidence of design that we have in biology that maybe we're looking at uh, a theistic designer, not uh, a space alien
1: um I just want to pick one or two things from different books Signature in the cells uh, you have it there behind you and when you simply begin to look at the complexity of cells, they you realize that they are like little mini cities that actually everything so much happens within and i guess we are learning more and more um about everything in life and you talk to doctors and they tell you that they are learning more and more about how the body functions and there's a lot of the unknown but when you look at that just complexity of we call it the simple cell which isn't really very simple um that uh new research and that new understanding surely that should move people to a position that this is impossible that this level of complexity uh, simply just happened so tell us about that just the the cell yeah, where, which is not I, simple
0: I, yeah that's the sort of ground zero for me in 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 my research and interest in the question was the, this origin of life problem that's what i did my phd on and, um, and and I think it's really interesting. I, we could have debates about the adequacy of Darwinian evolutionary theory. I'm skeptical about uh, what's called macroevolutionary th- theory, but set that all aside. Darwin presupposed the f- one or very few, uh, one or a few simple forms, and uh, in the immediate wake of the Darwinian revolution, people like Huxley and Heckel started to develop. Uh, theories of the origin of those first simple cells, and they, they and they regarded the cell in the late nineteenth century as a very simple as as Huxley put it a simple homogeneous globule or homogeneous globule of undifferentiated, undifferentiated protoplasm, and they viewed the essence of the cell as uh, a, a simple chemical it's coming from a simple chemical substance they called protoplasm. And so it kind of, and they viewed it as a kind of jello or goo, which could be produced by a few simple chemical reactions. That that viewpoint uh, started to fall by the wayside very, very quickly. By the 1890s, early part of the 20th century, we we were learning a lot more about the complexity of metabolism. When you get to the molecular biological revolution in the late 1950s and and, uh, 1960s, nobody any longer thinks the cell is simple because the, the most important biomacromolecules are large information-bearing molecules that are part of a larger information processing system. And so this is where I think, uh, and, and in, in confronting that, so, so any origin of life theory has to explain where that came from. Um, my supervisor used to say that the, uh, the the nature of life and the origin of life topics are connected. We need to know what life is in order to formulate a plausible theory of how it came to be. And now that we know that life is much more complex and that we have an integrated informational complexity that characterizes life, those 19th century theories and the first uh, origin of life theories associated with figures like Alexander Oparin, for example, from the 1920s and 30s, these are not adequate to explain what we see. But what's happened, and this is what I document in, in Signature in the Cell, is that none of the subsequent chemical evolutionary theories, whether they're based on chance or based on self-organizational laws or somehow based based on somehow combining the two, none of those theories have proven adequate either. That the, this problem of sequence specificity or or functional information has a defied explanation by reference to to theories that start with from lower level chemistry. It's it's proven. Um, it's proven very, very difficult, implausible in the extreme. To, 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 here's the problem: getting from the chemistry to the code is the problem. And undirected chemical processes do not, when observed, move in a life-friendly, information-generative uh, direction. And this has been this has been the problem. So there's there the impasse in origin of life research, which really began in the late 70s, was documented by this book I mentioned, uh, The Mystery of Life's Origin, and books. another book, for example, by Robert Shapiro called uh, Origins, A Skeptic's Guide. Um, th- that impasse from the 1980s has continued right to the present. Uh, Dawkins was interviewed in a film in 2009 by Ben Stein, the, the American uh, economist and comic, and, and very quickly Stein got Dawkins to acknowledge that nobody knows how we got from the prebiotic chemistry to to the first cell well that's kind of a news headline we got we get the impression from tech textbooks that the evolutionary biologists have this all sewed up they don't by any means this is a long-standing conundrum and uh, and, and it is it is the it is the integrated, Complexity and informational product uh, properties of the cell that have, I think, most fundamentally defied explanation by these chemical evolutionary theories, and I think that's very significant when you think of the whole kind of evolutionary story. Uh, Darwin thought that if you could start with something simple, then then the mutation selection, or oh, he didn't have mutations, but the mutation, uh, sorry, the natural selection variation mechanism could generate. All the complexity of life you go from simple to complex very gradually well if the simplest thing is immensely complex and and in a way and and, and manifests a kind of complexity that defies uh, any undirected process that we can think of well then then you don't have a seamless evolutionary story from 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 goo to you uh,
1: because I guess in, in when you're Darwin's Doubt, uh the, the next book you wrote, uh, I guess when Charles Darwin wrote Origin of the Species, he assumed it was settled, but science is never settled. There are always developments, and yet it seems that oh, that's sacrosanct and that cannot be touched and must be accepted.
0: Yeah, and and what I did in the second book was show or argue that the information problem is not something that only resides at the lowest level of in the biological hierarchy at the at the at the point of the first the origin of the first cell, but it also emerges later when we have major innovations in the history of life, as documented by the fossil record. Events such as the Cambrian explosion or the origin of the the mammalian radiation or the 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 uh, the uh, angiosperm revolution, there are many events in the history of life where you get this sudden or abrupt appearance in the fossil record of completely new form and structure. And we now know in our information age, as it's come to biology, that if you want to, if you want to build a new cell, you've got to have new proteins. So got to, you have to have information to build the first cell. But the same thing turns out to be true at the higher level. If you want to build a completely new body plan, you need new organs and tissues you need to arrange those or- or organs and tissues in very specific ways, and you need new proteins to service the new cell types that make the organs and tissues possible. So, anytime we see uh, the abrupt appearance of new biological form, that implies the origin of a vast amount of new biological information. And so, in Darwin's doubt, I simply asked, well, is there uh, can the, the can the standard mutation, natural selection mechanism explain the origin of the, the kind of information that arises and the amount of information arises. And I argue there that no, it doesn't, uh, that we have, there, there are many, many kinds of biological phenomena that Darwin's mechanism explains beautifully, the uh, small scale variation, adaptation, that sort of thing. So um, 2016, a major conference at the Royal Society in London First talk there was by the evolutionary biologist Gerd Muller. The conference was convened by a group of evolutionary biologists who think we need a new theory of evolution because uh, whereas Darwinism does a nice job of explaining small scale variation, it does a poor job or a a completely inadequate job of explaining large scale morphological innovation, large scale changes in form. And Mueller, in his first talk at this 2016 event, outlined what he called the explanatory deficits of neo-Darwinism, and he made that point very clearly. And so, it's um, uh, I think it's a new day in evolutionary biology. The word of this is not percolating so well, perhaps, but that was part of the reasons I wrote, reason I wrote Darwin's Doubt is that 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 within the bio- peer-reviewed biological literature, it's well known uh, that. That uh, the problem of the origin of large-scale form, the origin of new body plans, uh, is, is, not, uh, is not well explained by the mutation selection mechanism. At this 16 conference, the conveners were m- m- included many scientists who were trying to come up with new mechanisms that might explain the, the problem of morphological innovation. Afterwards, one of the conveners said that the conference was characterized by a lack of momentousness. Effectively, the evolutionary biologists proposing new theories of evolution and new evolutionary mechanisms had done a good job characterizing the problems, but had not, done, uh, had not really come up with anything that solves the fundamental problems that we encounter in biology when we see these large, large jumps in, in form and structure arising. And in, in Darwin's Doubt, I didn't just critique uh, standard neo-Darwinian theories of evolution, but many of these newer theories as well, showing that invariably the problem of the origin of biological information and, and the form that arises from it is, is the key unsil- unsolved problem in contemporary evolutionary theory. Uh, Mueller and Newman wrote a book with MIT Press uh, called on, uh, the, the, on the Origins of Organismal Form, which was a kind of play on the, on the origin of species. Darwinism does a nice job of of explaining speciation, small-scale changes within within the limits of the preexisting genomic endowments of an organism, but it doesn't do a good job of explaining new form that requires new genetic information. And these authors, Newman and Mueller listed uh, in a table of unsolved problems in evolutionary theory, the problem of the origin of biological form. Well, that's what we thought darwin explained back in 1859 and instead we realized that the, the mechanisms that he f- first envisioned have much more limited creative power and much more limited explanatory scope so uh, that that's that, that's w- what my second book was about and uh, also i think it's still this is still very much right at the 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 cutting edge of the discussion in evolutionary biology. We we can sp- explain the small-scale stuff, but not the big-scale stuff.
1: Um, let's just, just finish off with actually disseminating the information, because all of this is about taking issues which are complex and actually making it understandable uh, to the wider public. Uh, and uh, I guess part of that is, I mean, obviously being on the most popular podcast in the world on <laughs> Joe Rogan. I was like, oh, there's Steve Merritt on Joe Rogan. And taking that information and that turbocharges that. So maybe just to finish off on the, the ability to disseminate this because i think in the us the id movement is more understood where i think maybe in europe it's uh, certainly it's more misunderstood and not as accepted where there is an acceptance in the states but tell us about that and how being on something like podcasts like that turbocharged the message yeah well i can tell you you know
0: now that i'm getting introduced in, at conferences and things after the the joe rogan experience it's as if I never did anything else in my life. Of note, that's the only <laughs> thing people care to mention. It's uh, I mean he's got he's got a monster reach. He's extremely his questions on the on the interview were very probative. Um of course slightly s- to moderately skeptical, maybe more, but I thought they were fair. I thought it was a great discussion and, and it was a lot of fun. And you know, we've had not only I think he gets something like eleven million downloads on average for his podcast. We couldn't even believe these numbers when we were told them. But there have been over twenty five million um, derivative videos that uh, that social media influencers and podcasters have made about the Rogan interview analyzing different different sections of our conversation. So, yeah, that's been that was a huge boost to the dissemination of our message. But one thing I realized in our conversation, that there's a simple way to understand the information argument, and and, and that's a a one um, one of our tools in getting some of these ideas out is distilling some of these things that we've been talking about at a fairly deep level to um, a, a more understandable level. So let me, let me just run that argument that, that that argument sketch or the distillation of the argument by your audience, and then they um, would we'll talk about some of the things we're doing to get the, the word out, but. Um, our local hero in the Seattle area here is ba- Bill Gates, you know, the founder of Microsoft. And he is, he has said, like Dawkins, that the digital code in the DNA, that the DNA is like a software program, but much more complex than any we've ever created. Dawkins, as I mentioned before, says it's like a machine code. It contains machine code. Well, if you think about that, those are very suggestive quotations because what we know from our Uniform and repeated experience, which is the basis of all scientific reasoning, is that information always arises from an intelligent source. If you have a a section of software, there was a programmer involved. If you have a hieroglyphic inscription, there was an ancient scribe involved. If you have a paragraph in a book, there was a writer involved. Uh, As we're effectively broadcasting, we're transmitting information, uh, that information ultimately. Uh, issues from our mind. So whenever we, we look at information, an informational text or sequence, and we trace it back to its ultimate source, we always come to a mind rather than a material process. All attempts to explain the origin of life based on undirected material processes have failed because they couldn't explain the information present in DNA, uh, and RNA, and proteins. So the presence of that information at the foundation of life based on our uniform and repeated experience about what it takes to generate information is therefore best explained by the activity of a designing intelligence. It takes a programmer to make a program, to make a software program. And what we have in life is from many different standpoints, identical to computer, computer code. It is a, a, it is a section of functional digital information. So that's a kind of more, uh, more uh, user-friendly sketch of the argument. But the point is some of these, some of these key ideas that are, that make intelligent design. So uh, I think so persuasive at a high sovi- scientific level, if you actually look at the evidence can be also explained fairly simply. And so we're generating a lot of not just Joe Rogan podcast interviews, but uh, coming on many, many podcasts and that sort of thing. But also we're, we're generating a lot of YouTube video short, short documentaries that get some of these ideas across and uh, for your, your your uh, viewers one that i might recommend which is on um i uh, uh it, it was out on the internet it's called science uprising and it's a series of 10 short documentary videos another one that we've done called the information enigma which uh i think w- would would help people get into these ideas uh fairly quickly the information enigma is i think it's a 20 minute short documentary it's up online and we've had hundreds of thousands of views of it so we're doing a lot to sort of translate the 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 most rigorous science into accessible um, ideas and, and disseminate that in user-friendly ways. Um, the, the best website for finding a lot of this compiled is actually the website for my most recent book, Return of the God Hypothesis. So the website there is return to the com.
1: Okay, well, we will have the link for that in the description. Uh, Dr. Stephen Mayer, I really appreciate you coming along. Thank you so much for coming and uh, and sharing your experience and understandings of riding and um, making that understandable, I think, to the viewers, many of them who may not have come across this before. So thank you for your time today.
0: I really appreciate you having me on, Peter. If you like what we do, sign up to our mailing list donate, share, and subscribe to our many platforms at heartsovoke.org. Thank you for listening.